Hi friends, welcome to The Faithful Podcast, stories of people who walk by faith and gained a fuller understanding of the faithfulness of God. I'm your host, Stephanie Baker. Thanks so much for listening today. I am so excited about my guest for this episode. My guest is Christian writer, speaker, and social activist, Shane Claiborne. Shane has written several books that challenge the church and also bring hope. He is also one of the founding members of The Simple Way. We talk in this episode about how he began his activism by starting to care for and partner with the poor and the homeless in his community in Philadelphia. Shane is truly someone who loves his neighbor as himself, and I know he will inspire you to do the same. So here's part one of my interview with Shane Claiborne. Shane, thank you so much for um, for joining me today. I know there's a lot of work that's been put on hold for a lot of people, and I just appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to to chat with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I'm a little bit um, of a of a, a huge fan, if I could say that. Um, I I've heard about you for years, and actually, I have seen you speak in, in person a few times. So this is pretty exciting to get this opportunity to chat with you one on one. Yeah, totally. Where are you at? I forgot. I'm I'm in Philly, quarantined in here. I guess. But, yeah. Uh, where 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 are you living these days? I am in the Houston area, uh, but I did go okay. to nursing school in Philly many years ago. Okay. So that was kind of where I saw you and kind of heard about what what you were doing. So um, I was at LaSalle University back awesome. uh, over a decade cool. ago. But yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I grew up in Tennessee uh, and fell in love with Jesus, you, you know, down in the Bible Belt. Yeah. And, um, but, it, you know, it was there was a lot of uh, things that were still being redeemed, I think, you know, in mm-hmm. the South. Uh, we were a very segregated town. Um and so I ended up, uh, I really just wanted to see the world outside of the little town I grew up in. And I love my, my Southern roots mm-hmm. and don't try to hide them. But I also, <laughs> you know, wanted to um, experience folks that saw life through a little different lens. And uh, so I ended up coming up to Philly to uh, go to college mm-hmm. and a uh, wonderful college, Eastern University. It's about mm-hmm. a half hour outside of uh downtown Philly. And I studied the Bible and I studied sociology with my friend, Tony Campolo, um, awesome. wonderful sociologist. And I like, I, you know, it was Carl Bart that said, we've got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other mm-hmm. so that our faith, our faith doesn't just become a, uh, you know, ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in, but our, our faith mm-hmm. should actually, um, uh, you know, inspire us to, engage uh, the world we live in and the injustices and inequities of the world we live in. So I, uh, while I was in college, I got really involved um, with a group of homeless families that were living in an abandoned church building um, in North Philadelphia. So that was catalytic and life-changing, really. Um, you know, we were just 20 years old, but we, we, a bunch of my college friends and I organized a student movement to stand in solidarity with them because they were essentially being um, 
evicted from an abandoned church building by the church, the Catholic church. And um, so, you know, they had hung a banner on the front of the, the building that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it really um, uh, was s- sort of the, the seed that, that led to um, so many other things, you know, for us. But we, we started the simple way, the community I've been a part of on the north side of Philly, uh, just around the corner from that old cathedral. Um, awesome. My wife and I got married in, the, in that old building. We got permission to go back in because it was such a kind of special place for us, you know, mm. in our lives. So we, uh, the roof was still leaking and, you know, <laughs> but yeah. most of the <laughs> church was abandoned, but we uh, got to, got to go back in and, and resurrect it again. So, you know, that, that's, uh, that's, that's awesome. what we've been up to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, that's sort of how I first heard about you. Um, I, it was around, I believe it was around the spring of 2006 and maybe I'm wrong on that, but um, I remember reading uh, your your book. It, was that your first book, Irresistible Revolution? Yeah, that was. Uh-huh. Okay. And I was just really like drawn into this message that you were promoting because like you, I grew up in the South in a Bible-believing area. And um, this was um, sadly so transformational. You know, I mean, I guess I say sadly because it was, it shouldn't be. But um Tell me a little bit about the events that led up to and what prompted you writing that book. I know that's a loaded question. There's a lot of a lot of content to that book, but yeah, well, I wrote it. You know, uh, it's been over ten years because I went back. Someone had a great idea. It wasn't me. Someone else had a great idea to go back and do a ten year. Uh, anniversary edition. So oh, I cool. went back and kind of wrote notes in the margins and finished stories that were, you know, incomplete. And, mm. you know, so kind of said, you know, uh, you know, 10 years later, I would say this a little differently or whatever. So that was fun. But I, yeah, I, I, um, I, I know that there are, uh, you know, a lot of people that have spoken into my own life and, uh, you know, by their writing and their words. And so I, I, um, you know, when we were living into the community here, mm-hmm. I had done a lot of writing, but never done a book. And uh, I had a group of my friends that I prayed through the idea of doing the book with. And we also, you know, listed a hundred or so different organizations in the back that had helped um, shape us as a community. Because mm-hmm. a lot of what I like to do is point people to other really wonderful um communities and groups doing good stuff out there, you know, so I have a list and and we gave, we shared the money from the book, which, you know, we didn't know how much, I didn't know if anybody, but my mom would buy, you know, (laughs) we ended up, um, you know, we've sold, I I don't know, 300 or so thousand copies. And so we've been able to share all the money with all those different groups, you know, and, um, we started a little, we call it the Jubilee Fund, you know, mm. a little, ju- uh, uh, so it's, yeah, it's been pretty incredible to see how, um, um, the, the, what, you know, the Spirit's done with that, and um, now, you know, I'm a part of a group called Red Letter Christians that we started a few years ago that is supporting other 
communicators, speakers, and writers, and musicians, and we, we'd say uh, we're trying to harmonize but not homogenize, you know, okay. so the, the, like, like put our voices together for Jesus and justice. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a lot of what I've done, you know, since writing the first book and written about a dozen books, I guess, over the years, and Man. a lot of them I've done with other people. They've been collaborative projects, you know, so yeah, it's been been a good time. That's awesome. Yeah, I think you brought up a good point that, um, you know, pointing people toward other organizations is so essential because, you know, I, I was in Philly when this book came out and it was like, wow, I'm in the, the middle of what's what's going on. But there's a need in every community. And there are people who are doing this faithful work all around and, you know, just kind of saying, hey, look, don't look at me. <laughs> you know, look at what God's doing and, um, you can be a part of this too. I think that's really awesome. So, yeah, like, I like, there's a line that Dorothy Day said, she said, don't call us saints. We don't want to be dismissed that easily. Mm. And, uh, you know, she was a wonderful pioneer of the Catholic worker movement and, you know, that movement, the, um, so many others, like folks that in the base communities in El Salvador and Latin America, Oscar Amaro and others, they've really, you know, spoken into our lives. Of course, Mother Teresa, you know, as we were getting going, she was still alive. So yeah. they uh, they they've rubbed off on us. But yeah, I, I think we're we're a part of a beautiful cloud of witnesses. And and what was funny was when we were starting our community. Uh, we had some Catholic nuns that said, we love all that the Spirit's doing that's fresh and new and, um, you know, this kind of renewal in the church. Yeah. And then one of them said, you know, some of us, we've been trying to live out community for a little while, so we might have some some." a little wisdom to offer here and there too. And she said, our community's been around for 1600 years. <laughs> you know? So I yeah. think we need, uh, we need some of that elder wisdom as just as we need oh, some yeah. youthful imagination all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's really beautiful. There's, um, I mean, I, like I was in college and I know that that's when a lot of people are sort of sparked to, um, to do something big and they want to see the world changed. And sometimes that fizzles out, but it's so beautiful when that grows over time. And I think that you're kind of speaking into some of that when um, when people don't get jaded by the world, but in fact, they grow in compassion for it. So that's that those are the kind of people you want to latch on to, the folks that you want to be in your community. So Yeah, and I've got folks that I write about. Sister Margaret, we just celebrated her. She's uh, almost 90 years old, so wow. she's one of those Catholic nuns. And, of course, my friend Tony Campolo that I mm-hmm. you know, learned sociology with and now these days spend a whole lot of time with. Uh, we wrote a book together and do a lead red, red Letter Christians. And mm-hmm. uh, John John Perkins is another one that yeah. I, I wrote a book, Follow Me to Freedom. He's, you know— He's a very uh, just incredible man. As a, he's a son of a sharecropper, and um, his mother died as he was being born. His brother was wow. killed in the civil rights movement by police officers. So he's uh, he's just been an amazing mentor and friend as well. Mm. So yeah, we're thankful for uh, the the wonderful shoes that have walked ahead of us. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, how was inner city Philadelphia different than where you grew up? Oh, you know, North Philadelphia is a real different from the Smoky Mountains. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, I, so there's, you know, I, I love the country and, um, the, the kind of slow life of the South. Um, but like I said, I also think that there's, um, in, in my high school, for instance, we, we still had a lot of the residue of, uh, slavery and racism. We, we had the, the Confederate flag was my kind of high school symbol. It was on our, on our walls, on our yearbooks and our, you know, it was, uh, on our football uniforms. So I didn't really have Mm. eyes to see some of that until I got out of, um, that world. You know, in fact, I was putting my high school yearbook on, on my bookshelf in college and my friends saw the Confederate flag and they're like, what in the world is that? I'm like, it's my <laughs> high school yearbook. And they're like, oh yeah, well, that, gosh, yeah. that's uh, that's not about team spirit, man. You know, and so I, I really had mm-hmm. to like, you know, um, uh, th- that's part of why I've been leaning in and studying sociology, learning from folks in, in different ethnic and cultural contexts and stuff. You know, I've had a wonderful opportunity to get to travel around the world. And you, you just, you, 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 I think we're all shaped by, whatever we see out the window, you mm. know, it shape, shapes our worldview. And it's very clear that people are looking out of very different windows in the world. You know, I think especially racially, um, when you ask white folks and, and people of color, you know, does do things like racial bias play a role in our policing system? Yeah. Um, you know, white folks will overwhelmingly say, no, you know, there's a few bad apples, but the system works pretty good. And you ask mm-hmm. people of color, they're like, heck yeah, you know, racial bias has a massive in- influence on mm. our, you know, criminal justice system and policing, and they got stories to tell, you know. So I think it's mm-hmm. a really important time for us to be listening to each other and realizing that, especially those of us that are white folks, we, we kind of grow up with a certain um, outlook on the world that is shaped by our experience, but there's other people that have had very different experiences because of their social location. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's what a lot of what's hemorrhaging in our country is, um, around that kind of fault line of, of race. And, um, and, uh, you know, there's the old homogenous rule that we're, you know, we're all most comfortable around the people who are like us and most, most uncomfortable around people who are different from us. And yet I think that's where Jesus really shines because he says, yeah, everybody loves their friends and relatives and neighbors. Like you're, t- you're called to love bigger than that, you know, mm-hmm. and why Dr. King grieved that uh, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning was, you know, the most segregated hour in the world when yep. the church gathers for worship. So we've got a lot of work to do on that. And there's... Mm-hmm. Some wonderful folks, you know, uh, Christina Cleveland wrote a book, Disunity in Christ, and um, Lisa Sharon Harper, The Very Good Gospel. You know, there's all kinds of great women and men that are writing uh, books that are addressing a lot of those those things. Yeah, that's, it's so important to, um, and I think that you do this a lot, but, you know, coming from the background you did, you 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 still speak with compassion to those that are you know, maybe haven't had their eyes opened in certain areas. And I think that's, that's really, really important because not everybody's gone through the same transformation that you did in college and, um, and maybe, and since then, you know, but um, how do you feel like God opened your eyes to the needs of the poor? Well, uh, first of all, I, I think that you know this this idea that we in scripture that we all see through a glass dimly, like we're all you know kind of have our 
blind spots and right. we're as as a scripture also says we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling so it's it's you know i don't think that our faith is just about a moment but it's about a continual movement of the spirit shaping and forming us so mm. you know it, it, it for me that gives me quite a bit of um grace and patience with other folks because when we're talking about some of these big issues like you know i wrote a book on the death penalty i wrote a book on gun violence mm -hmm. um on a lot of these things, I've I, I have spent almost as much of my life um, arguing the other side of these than than how I feel right now. You know, right. like on the death penalty, I was very passionately for the death penalty and had all the scriptures that I thought would back it up. You know, and and so, but what what really changed me is proximity to mm. the people who are directly impacted by so many of these things. And um, I, I think proximity makes a world of difference. And, yeah. and um, you know, we can talk about issues, uh, but not know the people that we're talking about. You know, we can talk about immigrants in a really vague sense. But, you know, right now, my neighborhood looks like the United Nations. we got people from all over the <laughs> world who live here, you know, mm -hmm. and I... I um, I know the stories of my immigrant neighbors of what they've survived and, um, uh, you know, the same with uh, people in prison. The Hebrew says, you know, that we're to remember those who are in prison as if we ourselves were in prison. Yeah. Um, I mean, goodness, you can't get much more. Um, uh, I mean, that's that's a profound statement, you know, and yet I don't know, you know, a lot of Christians aren't don't know anybody in prison. And so I think that's where. We've got, you know, more, I, more often, I, I think it's not a compassion problem that we have in the church, but it's a proximity problem. Yeah. It's a relationship problem. And so Mother Teresa was very right when she said that um, it can be very fashionable to talk about the poor, but not as fashionable to talk to them. Mm. And if, if we really care about those who are suffering, we know their names. Like they're right. not just an issue, um, but they they are, you know, children of God and we are living near to them. And I, really, that's my whole understanding of Jesus is that God came near right to the suffering. Right. God sort of left all the comfort of heaven and was born as a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, you know, mm -hmm. it, a, as a refugee in the middle of a genocide who came from a town where people said nothing good could come from Nazareth, you know, and right. who died, you know, really the most horrific, um, torturous uh, execution, you know, on, on the cross. So I think all of that is about God being near to those who are suffering and yet we're really good at moving away from the people that Jesus moved near to. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so I, I, I think that's part of what community has really helped me with, too, is that you sort of create a, a gravity together towards that pain rather than the sort of urban flight or the, you know, movement away from the neighborhoods where there, you know, are visible struggles economically and right. um, things like that. So we... You know that that's that's part of I think the real a real central call of the gospel is to uh, to to move nearer to the pain of the world and to those who are suffering. Yeah, I think that's that's really good. Um, my husband and I we adopted some biological siblings um, several years ago, and they are African American. And at the time when we did 
you know, choose to adopt. We said we were open to whatever race and we hadn't really given it a whole lot of thought. We just knew that, you know, because of problems in the system and whatever, that there was a disproportionately high amount of African-American kids that um, were in need of homes. And it was, um, it was only after they moved in with us that we began to realize what, you know, what our culture does to African-Americans. And um, it really opened our eyes. And I think that was like a whole, like you're talking about proximity, that was a whole new level for, for us, for sure. And opening our eyes to, you know, the needs of our brothers and sisters around us that we were just completely unaware of. And when you see news stories that relate to, you know, a shooting of an African-American kid, it's like, oh, this is really sad before. And now as a parent to an African-American teenager, it's like, this is scary. This is really frightening. And we have got to do something about this. So I think the proximity makes it real. It makes it, you know, just like with, you know, we're in the midst of, you know, being quarantined with this coronavirus stuff. It's like, oh, when it was in China, it was, it was a little bit sad, you know, (laughs) now that it's here, it feels way bigger. And it's no, which we should be, we should have our eyes open all the time to the suffering around us. And um, that's what's going to spur us to actually move and to make some changes. So, um, yeah, Mother Mother Teresa had a good line on this. She said that sometimes our biggest problem is that the circle we put around our family is too small. Mm. And uh, you know, I think that's what Jesus is doing when we're being invited to be born again. Yeah, um, is to love as big as God loves, and mm. and you know, certainly a love for our own family is. Uh, a good thing, but it's that that love is extended beyond biology. And right. it's the problem with nationalism too, right? Mm-hmm. Is that um, it, the circle's just too small. You know, our, our, our love should not stop at borders. And um, when we hear things like America first, oh, I mean, you know, that's, yeah. you know, it's a theological heresy because the Bible doesn't say, you know, God bless America. It says God so loved the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I love, you know, that that vision of expanding our family and Jesus does that very consistently, right? When his mother and brothers biologically come, he says, "They say your mom and brothers are here," and he says, "Who is that?" You know, anyone's <laughs> yeah. doing my. And he even says, goes so far as to say, unless you, you know, hate your own uh, mother and father and family, like you're not ready to be my disciple. And it's it's certainly, I don't think a. Uh, he, I think he loved his mom, you know, as he's dying on right. the cross, he says, John, this is your mom now, you know, take mm-hmm. care of each other. He just is, is kind of challenging um, our notion of, of how small we love and, right. um, and, and, and extending that, you know, pushing that out. So it's something surely to remind ourselves of right now when it's easy to just um, be concerned about me and not about we, you know, about, about the folks that might be, you know, not able to go shopping right now or not right. know how they're going to, uh, meet their, their, uh, uh, house payment because they're not yeah. working this month or whatever. So, yeah, I think those are really, really, um, uh, beautiful things to, to keep challenging, um, ourselves to love bigger. Mm-hmm. And right now in, in our country, I think we've, we've, uh, it's easy to have that that circle really, really small to where we're just caring about uh, the people who are closest to us rather than kind of extending that love as Jesus did. Yeah, that's I mean, it's it's so scary to do that at all times. And especially when there's like physical, um, 
implications, you know, physical illness implications. But um, Jesus's message was, you know, sometimes it was met with being, you know, well-received and embraced, and other times it was rejected and mocked. And I know that you have, um, you brought a lot of those things to light um, to folks around you. So can you share share with us maybe um, some examples of the types of reception that um, people received to the message of the irresistible revolution. Well, you know, I I think that uh, Jesus had a lot of challenging things that he said. You know, I mean, geez, he said, uh, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Right. You know, that we're to love our enemies. He, we were reading this morning. Uh, um, the woes to the religious people, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. boy, he didn't mince words at all. You know, he, he, he said things like to the, you know, religious elite, he said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Mm, I know, right? <laughs> so, I mean, wow, you wonder what got him in trouble, you know, and, and <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Sister Joan Chittister, she has a wonderful way of saying it. She said, Jesus, uh, very consistently challenged the chosen and Mm. included the excluded. Wow. And you see Jesus sort of doing that. Anyone that thought that they were the hub of everything holy God was doing in the world, like Jesus really, really kind of calls out that self-righteousness, which, you know, he calls the yeast of the Pharisees that sort of like is so toxic and it's so evident in our world, you know? But then Jesus is constantly including people that uh, everyone else had shunned and excluded. So, um, yeah, that's a, it's a tricky message, but I mean, I find everywhere I go that folks are hungry for um, a Christianity that is engaging the world that we live in, that, that is not just promising people life after death mm-hmm. when so many people are asking if there's life before death, you know, doesn't right. the gospel have anything to say to this world? And I, I'm excited about the afterlife. I mean, I believe, you know, in life after death, but I also believe in life before death, you know, mm-hmm. and I believe that the, the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about was not just something we're to go up to when we die, but something we're to bring on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus mm-hmm. taught, you know, so that I find that's really resonating with a lot of people because there's a whole generation that is very aware that the world that we've been handed um, is fragile and broken and that, that, that you know, um, that the things that Jesus taught are so wonderfully relevant and right. radical to the world, uh, you know, that we live in. I mean, geez, you read the, the, the you know, the uh, in Luke's gospel, it says, that uh, the mighty will be cast from their thrones and the lowly will be lifted up. The hungry will be filled with good things and the rich will be sent away empty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, man, uh, gosh. Yeah. Man, like so much of the Bible, I mean, it makes Bernie Sanders sound really tame. You know, like I, I think there's just a radical economic call. There's a call to love our enemies. There's so much that's challenging in us, but there's also this, this beautiful grace, you know, and right. and that's where I think we, you know, one of the things that Jesus did was he brought people together that would never sit at the same table, you know, like a Roman tax collector and a zealot mm. revolutionary. They were enemies, you know, yeah. a, a Pharisee and a, you know, kind of marginalized woman that would, would have never been able to eat at the same table. And so Jesus is challenging, I think, all of those, that that um, cultural baggage that we have and freeing people up to 
to become a new creation, but also to believe that other people can be made new. Right. Um, you know, so when I was in Texas down there in your hometown, I had this guy come up to me and he goes, I, I got to tell you, man, I'm a redneck. I'm a gun toting, you know, pickup truck driving, whiskey drinking redneck. And he said, but God's been working on me. I've been reading your book. And he said, and uh, I wanted to ask you to pray for me because it's messed me up and I'm a mm. recovering redneck now, you know. <laughs> so I think, you know, we need to we need to always um have a seat at the table for for the next person that's you know trying to follow after Jesus and um, I uh, uh, it's my my when I my friend Tony Campolo you know, will say to him the church is full of hypocrites he's got a really great line he says no it's not we've always got room for more <laughs> so you know we've really got to realize that the church is a place where uh, we can be made new you know and it's a bunch of imperfect people that are falling in love with a perfect God and we're trying, you know, every day to help each other become a little bit more like the God we worship. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's so challenging too. I mean, um, there's a quote that um, is actually from your book that I really liked, but it's, um, I'm convinced that if we lose kids to the culture of drugs and materialism of violence and war, it's because we don't dare them not because we don't entertain them. It's because we make the gospel too easy, not because we make it too difficult. Kids want to do something heroic with their lives, which is why they play video games and join the army. But what are they to do with a church that teaches them to tiptoe through life so they can arrive safely at death? Um, I, <laughs> I remember reading that and being like, oh, crap. <laughs> uh, I, my husband... Um, we have kind of a joke that we like a good message that makes us feel like crap. And that was one of those that, you know, and Tony Campolo is good at that too. Um, but making me feel like, okay, not, not in the sense that you're, you know, you're condemned and there's no hope for you, but in the sense that like, you know, what is this, this culture around us pushing us toward? And um, I think that you're the message that you're promoting this, this um, message of calling people to live out the words of Jesus is so powerful, especially to the younger generation, because that's what they want. And I think it's only over time that people kind of, um, I don't know, they get immune to it almost. They've been inoculated against it. They, um, they're kind of hardened to what the message is. But Jesus's message is powerful, and we're not going to have a boring life if we follow Jesus. And I think that's something I see a lot in, um, in the things that you've written about, but, you know, in what God is doing in the lives of believers all around the world. Yeah, you know, you used an interesting word, the inoculate word. I think it's a very good one. I mean, uh, you know, as, even as we think of the, the you know, the, the vaccines, they, you know, sort of often use a, you know, watered down version of mm -hmm. the disease and it knocks it out of you. And I think one of the great dangers in America is um, this sort of watered down uh, Christianity that yeah. really oftentimes doesn't resemble Christ very much at all. And uh, a lot of times it's more of this American nationalism that's camouflaging itself as Christianity, you know, but um, Kierkegaard said uh, very poignantly, where everything is Christian nothing is Christian because we lose our distinctiveness and we lose our, the depth of what we're trying to do. So, right. you know, when you, when you have a, in God, we trust branded on money, 
Yeah. Even though the economy looks like the seven deadly sins, you know, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that that there's a problem. And I think, you know, that um, that's that's a lot of what people have rejected. So when people tell me they've given up on Christianity, I often, you know, ask them, tell me about what you've given up on. And usually as they describe it, um, I've given up on the same version of things that they have, you know, and what what people are really longing for. I've got a pile of letters here from folks that have either, you know, left the church or are, you know, kind of right on the, the, the verge of leaving it. And over and over, they say, thank you. Right. I, I knew that there was more to Christianity than, uh, you know, cover up bishops and sex scandals and televangelists mm. that are, you know, just wanting more money and, right. tr- you know, flying on private planes and, you know, all <laughs> this like kind of patriotic pastors that are blessing the very people, you know, that that uh, uh, are already blessed and cursing the poor that Jesus blessed. And so I think we've right. got, you know, a whole lot that that folks are concerned about. But yeah, I, I think that the, the, the best critique of what's wrong is the practice of something better. Mm-hmm. So even as Jesus was calling out the religiosity that did not care, you know, about the the poor and care about justice, like we've still got a lot of those same things. It's nothing new, you know, but I think we, we need to live out a Christianity that is more compelling and more beautiful and that, that looks more like Jesus, you know, and right. um, a, a lot of times we, our Christianity doesn't pass the sniff test, you know, mm-hmm. the sniff test, it just doesn't smell like Jesus. You right. know? And that, and that's the very most basic test. I think, you know, as they, Jesus said, they'll know that you're Christians by your love. So if it doesn't smell like love, then it's uh, let's not call it Christianity. Mm. Thanks so much for listening to part one of my interview with Shane Claiborne. Make sure you look out for part two to hear all about God's faithfulness. If you love the Faithful Podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Reviews are so important to help other folks find the Faithful Podcast so that it can be a blessing to them. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. If you feel called to support Shane and his ministry, please find the links on my website faithfulpodcast.podbean.com. You should also check out my husband's podcast, Reclaiming the Faith, to learn more about what the earliest Christians taught about the issues facing us today. There's a really great episode called The Coronavirus and the Plague of Cyprian. It's so inspiring and very applicable to what we're dealing with today in the world. Go to reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com or find him on iTunes. Remember, if you want to find me, check out faithfulpodcast.podbean.com or on Instagram at faithfulpodcast. Have a great week and remember to stay faithful, friends.